0: Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nikolich, and my guest today is Dr. Theana Kios, who is a critical ethnographer with a passion for psychiatry, psychology, and mental health. In this regard, her research explores the boundary between the psychological and societal focused views of the self by adopting critical ethnographic methods. Specifically, her PhD research encompasses several interconnected topics, notably managerial ideology, normative control, the underlying systems of culture and subcultural meaning with a particularly strong focus on concepts of self enacted in everyday working life, and how such enactments reflect self-consciousness from the perspective of various cohorts in the workplace. Dr Kios has consulted with organisations in a variety of industries, including government, healthcare, consulting firms, and private enterprise to assess and improve an organization's ideology, culture, cultural change management practices, and approaches to leadership. It was a great pleasure to talk to Dr. Kios, particularly around her qualitative research, the methods, and how they're different to the quantitative practices, and how she uses this approach to both value and understand mental health in organisations, and give a different aspect to the quantitative method. Hope you enjoy this episode. Anna, a big thank you for coming onto the program today. I know that you're very busy and and are very passionate about the work that you do. So it's a pleasure to have you for this short period of time, but looking forward to picking your brain.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I'm very pleased to be here with you today.
0: Thank well, it's, you ac- it's exciting to talk to you because as part of my training and obviously being a clinical psych uh, there is such a great focus on the quantitative uh, uh, method. Um, everything is about the scientific method, and, and for good reason, uh, it's understandable. But it's very rare that the qualitative side of research gets a voice. And I think that any conversation that looks at whether it's psychology or or any other field, we should try and understand all the different viewpoints. So I'm really excited to to, to talk to you, and in particular about yeah mental health and that uh qualitative method i know that one of your passions and specialties is around culture mental health and and you've done a lot of research there so um yeah appreciate you coming on
1: oh my pleasure yes i think there's lots to discuss around you know the differences between obviously quant and qual and the value that they bring um to academia and research in general but i think there's a lot uh, there's a lot to offer in terms of taking an even you know uh an alternate view, if you like, of, of research, and that's to adopt an ethnographic method, which is really the method that I. Um, I was trained in as a PhD student and uh, a criti- it's actually critical ethnography that I've been trained in and it really offers a unique perspective, I think, in terms of research insight. So very happy to discuss that and I think you bring up really important points to, to, um, to think about in terms of the value quant can bring and the value that qual can bring um, and perhaps together even how they can be used in mixed, me- mixed method studies to, to offer insights and value together.
0: There's lots of uh, uh, qualitative work or research methods. What what is uh, attractive to you about the ethnographic approach, and, and and how did you even fall into that?
1: It's such a it's such a good question because I I don't know if you know of the PhD process, but you know generally what happens is you you um, you think of an idea, right, and then you have to kind of work out who would be the right person to work with. And, you know, most of the time things tend to fall into place during that process, which can take, you know, a good year. could even take a little bit longer um, for some people. But what had happened to me is I was really interested in organisational culture and I started off on the um, sort of on the line of thinking, right, well, what's happening now? I know that quant's the major research method that everybody's using. Um, let me think about this. And then I started doing some research into that and I thought, I'm just not passionate about quant. I've never been good at it. Um, I much prefer the interaction with people, which actually brings to the surface the real richness of you know dialogue that you can have with participants. And that's something that you can't get with quant, right? And then I started reading into some other work that was from a Stanford professor her name's Joanne Martin, and she started doing some, you know, some qualitative work, or well, she was doing quite a lot of qualitative work at that time. Um, she's now retired. But I actually reached out to her and she said to me, look, if you want to do really good research in culture, in organisations, you must read the work of John Van Manen and Professor Gideon Kunda, both professors. Uh, one's a professor of um labour studies at Tel Aviv University. He's also recently retired. He was actually my PhD um, uh, academic mentor. And John Van Manen, who's also retired now, who actually actually trained under Edgar Schein, who was really the leading academic in organisational culture back in the 80s. Um, But he really set the path on a really good trajectory around qualitative research in the area of organisational culture. And so basically... I took up her advice. I ended up going um, to a library and reading up as much as I could on the research of Gideon Kunda. And I absolutely fell in love with his work straight away. And I actually went to Israel twice for him to um, supervise me. I had to convince him twice. (laughs) And then finally he (laughs) said to me, you know what, I can see the passion. Not many people travel from this land called Australia to come over and see me. Um, but you have, and you've done it twice, and I can see that you're really committed to this. And I think that's one thing that a PhD student needs to demonstrate their commitment to to the to the project. And it was really from that experience uh, that I worked out, okay, I've got the right teacher to teach me. He's incredibly um, uh, he's incredibly demanding on the outcomes that I deliver in terms of the quality of research and he his advice was to me you really need to go and see what's going on with your own eyes when you investigate investigate culture you can't do it you know from a from an armchair you know theorizing and thinking about it from from some some sort of distance you need to be in there with the people watching observing taking notes making interpretations thinking laterally about what's going on thinking why things are going on how they're working out the way that they are and so that's what happened and i just got so lucky that because um, normally when you do ethnographic research, you you have to have this thing called access given to you. And if you're not given access, which can be difficult, um, there's your project gone. So mm-hmm. I was actually very lucky at the time. Services South Wales actually came to me. They were very interested in doing some research on their culture. And the timing was right and it gave me access to them for a year-long fieldwork project, which is essentially the data collection that I collected for all of my PhD. So that's how it started. Um, But the method itself, sorry, that was a long-winded sort of (laughs) answer to that first part of your question, but the method itself is unique because, and I should mention it's critical ethnography, which really puts a lens. You're looking at the dynamics of power and culture in relation to how people behave in various social contexts. So it could be... um, on the front stage, which is a a term that Goffman coined, which is really about front stage behaviour, and that's something that my PhD looked at, or the backstage, which is another side of enactment, if you like, where people act a little bit differently, you know. Mm. So ethnography, because you're there, you're observing people in different situations, you're observing actually how they traverse cultures of an organisation. So you can see them literally acting in different ways in front of different people because the cultural uh, nuance in that particular environment is different, the co- the con- the context is different, the power mm. relations are different, and so that was really the crux of my PhD, and I and I developed a number of concept concepts out of that. But I really wanted to understand culture from being immersed in the actual organisation and understanding the daily practices of, of of staff. You know, what did they wear? What were they talking about? Where did they talk about certain things? What were they saying? Um, you know, under what contexts would they behave in certain situations? Uh, you know, when was it okay to be themselves versus not? Under what conditions did mental health um, issues arise versus, you know, not arise or at least not being visible to other people? So it was all these kinds of really different dynamics about the organisation that I wanted to learn about and that's the, and the lens of critical ethnography um, was the way to do that.
0: Very immersive, so that you're able to observe all sides and, and and differing sides to get an understanding of of an environment, of a culture, uh, and I suppose from from there have a different uh, viewpoint uh, because Absolutely. most of us tend to only hear a single point of view. Certainly, as a as a psychologist, where predominantly I'm working with a single um, individual occasionally couples, uh, you are at least observing you know the one point of view or at least the couple in session though. Uh, it's different to see a couple where you have an individual session with each of the couples. They say different things, they present differently and and so there's there's a lot of power that comes out of that. And I know that our psychologists uh, in our practice uh, see very different viewpoints between uh, the ones working with children, what a child says, what a parent says when the child is there what a parent says when the child is not there and, and That's empathize. right. so seeing uh how an organization or how a culture uh, works and and evolves and and what can be said what can't be said in different environments or how they present I like that whole idea of you know front facing versus the 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 back you know the, That's the political strange. world um is probably much the same as everything else. You you say things differently in different contexts. So how how fascinating.
1: It is. And I guess the one thing that's really important to mention in relation to, you know, dynamics of the front stage and the backstage, the front stage is very much controlled by this thing called ideology or in an organizational context, managerial ideology. Right. So, individuals or employees of an organisation have, they're employed to actually present a particular facade to be in alignment with the ideology of the organisation. For example, when I did my research at Service South Wales, their, you know, their catch cry is, um, you know, the DNA culture, we put the customers at the heart of everything we do. So everything that they presented on the front stage had to reflect that whether they were having a bad conversation with the customer, whether they were having a you know um, uh, heated discussion with management, the the real crux of their presentations on the front stage was we do everything we can for the customer. So then, when you go to the backstage, you see a lot of the contrary um, sort of opinions to that, right? Because people are people. They have to actually negotiate with humans in everyday interactions. And sometimes they have to suppress what they're actually feeling in situ, but that comes out eventually. And if you get the trust of your participants, particularly if you spend a long period of time with them, I was with them for a good year. um, And so people got really used to seeing me. So that's something that you don't necessarily get as a qualitative researcher. If you're just interviewing someone, particularly let's just say a focus group, you're interviewing someone they've never met you before, they're unlikely to tell you really everything that they going through but if you've been with these people you're actually almost part of the organization as an employee to a degree um they're more likely to actually tell you stuff and of course everything is in confidence but of course you can actually use um a lot of that information obviously indeed identified formats in you know publications um and that really paints a story about what really happens in an organization it is not just so black and white it's certainly not like it is when you Um, You Google an organisation, you see the beautiful website, you see the lovely catch cries. You know, these are socially dynamic environments where lots of things go on and, yeah, a lot of it comes to the surface when you're doing interviews on the backstage. So there you go.
0: (laughs) And what sort of research have you conducted and how did that come about? How does an organisation approach uh, the, you know, critical ethnographer to say come and have a, a, a look, look around the work that we that that we do. Is it is it often a, a culture based scenario? We're trying to improve what we're what we're doing or we've got some conflict in the organization? Is it trying to understand you know the organization as a whole or is you know how, how do these questions come come, come about? Apart? Yeah.
1: It's a really good it's a really, really good question because It's not so simple as, let's say, a consultant coming in for a week, interviewing five people or 10 people or whatever, and then coming up with a solution. I think it's much better to, um, you know, if you were interested in embarking upon the critical ethnographic pathway to understand your organisational culture from a uh, power and control dynamic, particularly a normative control dynamic, then you're much better off having someone who is potentially already an insider within the organisation, not anyone in HR, um, or you could potentially hire someone who has some anthropological skill and have them, you know, participate in routine activities of the organisation for a prolonged period of time so they can build up the knowledge over a long period of time to be able to say, oh, hang on, this is what's really going on here. If anyone comes into an organisation as a consultant, they're only going to be able to give very, very superficial um, information around consultative needs for that organisation. You really don't have a good understanding unless you spent time with people and you understand intrinsically how they're feeling, how they perform their work, what sort of interactions they have and on what basis. Um, That's how you get to understand. And, of course, you need to understand that at multiple levels, right, because when you study culture, there is the, you know, we call it the integrationist perspective, right? So that's the, the prescribed ideological management view of culture. Then you have, of course, other levels of culture within that. So you have the differentiation perspective, which is really a good idea of, um, it gives you a good idea of the subcultures in the organisation and often they're um, separated through departments or groups and I'll give you an example of that in a sec. And then there's a fragmentation, pardon me, the fragmentation perspective, which is really um, there's no consensus It's or there's no differentiation. It's really ambiguous. Things are sort of free-floating. There's no rule, you know, it, there's no real standard um benchmark for which to view the culture upon because everything's very ambiguous, it's unclear, and and that can happen in different pockets of sub- subcultures. Uh, so it's, you know, it's such a dynamic, moving um, uh, phenomena culture, right? It's not static, it moves. So you have to kind of understand the flowing dynamics of it as well. You know, leadership changes culture. You know, you might hire someone... Um, to lead a particular department, that culture will change. You might hire someone actually in middle management. Middle management have a lot, a lot of power in in changing culture. And, you know, that will completely change the dynamics. So it's it's a fluid process and you have to understand how these processes interconnect and sort of work together to either, you know, produce a really powerful and enjoyable culture to work in or, you know, potentially a toxic one. Um, So... I think I've gone off topic though. What was your actual original <laughs> question?
0: I was asking in in, in, in essence where, where does the question come from? Or how how do you sort of get engaged? What 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 are the reasons for the uh you know critical ethnographic um yeah. approach to come uh, or, or to be involved? Uh, yes. Because it is- so- Sorry, please, please.
1: No, no, you're right. I think if you want an ethnographic approach, you'll be able to get that with, um, you know, basic observation and interpretation skills, right? But over a prolonged period of time. But if you want to take a critical ethnographic approach, that's when you when you need to really take in, um, the the integrationist view of the culture and how it shifts language and behavior on the front stage and the back stage. So that's mm-hmm. what a that's what a critical lens would give you. Um, and sorry, I was going to go come back to an, an example. So when I did my research at the at Service New South Wales, um, at the time of that research, the um, there was a, a quite a large machinery of government change, which meant that the Department of Customer Service was actually um, basically taking up a number of agencies within it, and Service New South Wales was one of those. And so you can imagine at the time of this research that created quite a lot of change and quite a lot of uncertainty for employees. Um, But it was a really opportune time to do research because it really gave me access into the the dynamics of change and how it impacts mental health. Um, And I think that's where critical ethnography could be really valuable because you can actually unearth perspectives, thoughts, subjective experiences, emotions, which would otherwise lay completely dormant and you wouldn't get access to. Mm. Um, And the, the problem with that is, you have a potentially emerging a large, you know, issue emerging within the organisation where people are feeling huge impacts to their mental health, and nothing's being done about it. No, 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 sort of preventative measures have been put in place, um, or very little. And um, these problems emerge over time, and then eventually you have people having getting burnt out, leaving for various reasons. Uh, all of, all because there wasn't enough information before the machinery of government change was to take place to be able to mitigate, you know, these intrapersonal and interpersonal tensions that were eventually going to emerge because of the change. So that's where critical ethnography could be really valuable, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting looking at the front stage being that ideological sort of perspective versus the backstage being what, what's actually occurring because often I'm assuming, uh, you know, even within a meeting, uh, there are uh, you know, likely to be lots of staff members who are still holding a type of front stage because they have to by virtue of being management, uh, yes, at least to a degree depending on the management style and so on. Um, uh, while others maybe in the room are uh, you know feeling something very different, like you know, this impression management going on or you know, someone is being told, from up top, that this is how they need to present, and there's so much of a dynamic going on, which is that I suppose that 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 powering, controlled dynamic, and 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 how messages are, uh, are presented or and then relayed as well, and and follow ups. Uh, the the complexity must be absolutely um well, it's exciting, but uh, uh you know, high complexity systems.
1: Absolutely, I think. The one important thing I think to mention in on the backstage is that, you know, you will have people who present a more sort of unconscious presentation of self, right? On the backstage. So they're more, they're more likely to be expressive um, in relation to their emotions and cognitions around various stimuli that's going on around them. You know, that's where potentially you have, you know, gossip, etc. going on. Um, but the backstage is still. place where people perform they just do so differently and they do so on different terms so it's still it's still a presentation of self even though we think it's what's really going on there's still a degree of you know obscurity there depending on you know who's present and um you know and there's almost if you like therefore um an oscillating phenomena between the front stage and the back stage. Am I on the front? Am I on the back? You know, and this can go on for some time before people really know each other and they're really comfortable with each other. So you might have, for example, uh, a really close relationship with your manager and your manager might be in a position to tell you things um, in confidence. So is that the front stage? Is it the back stage? Like you have to kind of negotiate that boundary. So it's not Mm -hmm. so clear cut. Um, but we know we know that from the research that different presentations of self elicit different emotional um, uh, emotional, I guess components to someone's psyche and cognitions as well. So we get access to different information on both. And that's what's really exciting because you see it flux as people, you know, traverse, traverse the organisation, the different cultures. They might go from one subculture to another and you'll see that their behaviour is completely different. For example, I just went to a leadership meeting um, with the dean of the university, you know. That that behaviour will be different to my behaviour with my colleagues, you know, that I see every day. So it's it's just an interesting part of social life, which I find mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, and I could talk at length about it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you have another question to ask.
0: <laughs> there's, there's, I suppose, that mental health aspect that comes, uh, I'm assuming, uh, in particular, when there's maybe a discrepancy between the front stage and the backstage, if there's yes. that's quite significant where there's an ideological perspective that everyone's putting on, yep. um, yet the backstage is looking quite different, people are personally feeling quite different, Um that discrepancy you know potentially leads to things like burnout I think as as you mentioned but uh there, there, there becomes a conflict an internal conflict that, yes um you know find we, we would find as human beings difficult to reconcile and and so there's I suppose a, an internal emotional psychological tension yes that that builds um obviously the further apart they are that that the, the, the more difficult that could potentially be to you know for individuals to hold
1: absolutely, and I think as a critical ethnographer going in and spending a lot of time with people, you become part therapist. You know, most of the time, people were telling me, you know, on the backstage, uh, you know, particularly towards the end of field work, once I'd you know really established some solid relationships with participants, they were really, really quite um, expressive with their you know, the things that had transpired in their working lives for that period of time while I was doing research. And, you know, you it's a, it's really a privilege if you look at it from that perspective, because they actually give you an access into their subjective experience, which you would never have otherwise. Mm. And that venting opportunity for them and allows them a way to process and release the tension. And I think that's really, really key. If there are avenues within workplaces which allow and enable staff members to release the tension, particularly during times of immense structural change or change in general, I think that's very, very healthy. There should be, you know, a degree of tolerance there by management for people um, because I think, that's going to save them in the end. It's going to save them from a lot of burnout. It's going to save them probably from a lot of staff turnover. It'll actually probably transform their culture to a degree because people will feel more comfortable in being able to express, you know, their true um subjective thoughts and feelings about situations, which I, I think can only only good can come from that. Uh, providing it's within reason, right? So there will be individuals who do have, you know, mental health challenges who will need additional assistance, and you'd pick that up as a critical critical ethnographer, and you might be able to um, offer some, you know, options there. But I think overall, if you can create an environment where people have an opportunity to release the tension, that's the important part—release the tension. Um, then that would that would go some way towards transforming culture for the for the better.
0: And what are the 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 ways? that that tension can be uh, released or or mitigated what are some of the i suppose approaches that might be recommended or or are understood to have value you know for example i know that people who are frontline workers in like emergency type services i believe there is very strong um, evidence that uh, having a debriefing mechanism is really important. Yes, uh, where people are given the opportunity, whether they take it or not, actually, my understanding is doesn't actually matter. Uh, but that that channel is open for staff members to say, "This is how I'm feeling. This is how this experience, uh, you know, is, is is affecting me. This is what I don't like about what what what's going on." That they're heard by someone. And yes. I think who who they're heard by is also important. Yes, um, yes, uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Uh,
0: um, uh, I'm not sure if 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 uh, um, uh, if there are certain recommendations or suggestions that uh, the the critical ethnographer can put forward, and 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 how they formulate what might be useful. Maybe you could talk talk me through that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think. You know, that process should not be just tackled in one way. It needs to be multi-layered. For example, an organisation, I wrote a paper on this specifically, talking about when an organisation goes through a lot of change, there needs to be a committee in place who are trusted by their employees and easily accessible so that employees can come and talk to them at various stages of a transition. Now, who is qualified to be in such a position? Well, you can't put HR in there because there's dimensions of power and control. You can't put management in there, again, because there's power. Uh, there's issues of power and control. So who do you put in there? Do you put an external consultant who knows nothing about the organisation? Does that make sense? Sure. These are really tricky questions and I think it needs to, in my opinion, that. They need to be really hand-selected individuals who are known to be morally um, appropriate and have integrity to conduct such a privileged job because what you're really asking people to do is explain all of their, um, you know, issues of contention with the change and to do so in a safe and appropriate manner where nothing's going to go further up if it doesn't need to and that if things need to be escalated, they can be done at such a level of abstraction in terms of the content that's delivered to management or senior leaders in charge of a change that no one who is actually providing that information can actually be identified. Sure. So who you pick is really, really critical in this process, in my opinion. And it needs to be a number of different individuals who are trusted, essentially. Um, so it's it's a really big question. As a critical ethnographer coming in, I would suggest that, you know, that person comes in prior to a massive change because at least they've got the lay of the land before the actual change commences. They've got, you know, relationships beginning to emerge and being established while, the you know, the, the start of the change is going on. And then, of course, as the change is actually progressing, they're there all the way through it. So I, I would recommend, you know, an external person as well. Um, if they have the skill and the sensibility and the sensitivity to conduct such a, an inquiry, right, and to conduct such a, um, an important piece of work, they need to be skilled in that area. And so it's not as easy as just putting a consultant in from a third party organisation like a Price Waterhouse Coopers et cetera to do the work. They don't have the skill necessary to conduct it. Um, yeah, so you know, being really discerning about who you put in and from where and for how long is really important. These are, you know, there's no easy answer to that question.
0: Sure, sure. But the, 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 there's a general understanding that if there is a level of anonymity, uh, but the message can still be heard. Yes. Uh, there's still those challenges that are uh, met by organizations where there might be a concern that is heard, but the organization still cannot make yes, a, a change or action. Yep. However, there's still merit in an organization potentially for example being able to acknowledge that that is an item that is important to its staff and maybe explain why. explain why for example just making this up why why then unable to to do it because there is you know other competing demands that that it could you know affect and and how that's explained i suppose is, is is quite important
1: yeah and i think that's fair i think that's fair organizations particularly management, have a lot of competing priorities and a lot of, you know, objectives that they have to meet. And when they're, you know, given a curveball, you know, information that they, you know, necessarily need to hear but necessarily can't really do anything about, um, yeah. that puts them in a bit of a predicament. However, I do think it's the expression of the tension that's important, I think. That's, that's really important.
0: Can you because, say more about that, the expression of the tension?
1: Yes, because... When we don't express, I think, in a safe environment our subjective experiences that are essentially eating us up, whatever that might, you know, whether they're personal, whether they're professional, whatever, let's say in the context of this discussion we're talking about a professional situation, I think that actually has negative impacts on our mental health. I think people need a safe place to release the tension. Um, often a spouse does that, right? For when we're at work, we often go back sure. to. I know I do with my partner. I'm, I'm always whinging to him about things at work, you know. Um, <laughs> and he's that, he's that person for me. But a lot of people don't have that person, or they don't feel safe enough to express it. So finding an avenue for expression, I think, is really important. And when an organisation can't do things, can't do that, or can't provide that, I think that's really problematic. Um, and uh, so if you can't, if you can't have that kind of relationship with someone at your workplace where you feel safe enough to express what you're actually um, subjectively going through then you need to find an outlet for that and there's of course there are other methods right people journal for example that's another really good method it's a way of releasing the tension you're getting it out Um, other people you know practice yoga Um, other people go to the gym and smash a massive you know punching bag you know that's another way of expression but we, we we need to you know encourage people to express things in a healthy way, which is not going to impact them further. And when there is change in any situation, tension is likely to emerge because often we don't have the necessary skills in being able to deal with it consciously. We deal with it unconsciously and when we deal with it unconsciously, we're not actually processing it properly because we're not putting the language to what we're going through, right, at the, in situ. So when we put the language to what we're going through in situ, we have a way to process um, and I think that's an optimal way to to actually express, um, you know, some of that tension and process it and get it out, let it out, and then move on, of course,
0: yeah.
1: um, because it's not then circulating around in our in our brains, whether it's unconscious or conscious. It's, 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 we've moved forward and we're on to the next thing, whatever that might be.
0: What do you think are the current state-of-work cultures that, you know, we live in, 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 in in Australia, I know that it's obviously going to be very different for each, you know, organization or department, but you're able to talk about it in in a bit more of a general sense through your experience. You've obviously spent a lot of time talking to lots of people through all levels of, you know, management, you know, um, those who are, you know, public facing all the way through to management and senior executives and, and, and the like, what is the, the 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 general culture? It seems like there's going to be a uh, in any organisation a a percentage point of staff being unhappy with the the, the 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 situation. You know, whether it's perceived or whether it's valid, whether it well, it,
1: yep. it
0: actually doesn't even matter, I suppose, whether it's quantitative at that point. <laughs> Uh, if someone's experience is that there is a you know uh, a um discrepancy between the ide- ideological you know front stage uh, and the backstage, they're going to be pretty upset, you know. And, and some of that might be just political viewpoints or or personal viewpoints. Um, what would you say is is the general um? were culture-like in Australia at the moment? I I know it's a bit awkward. Maybe you're trying to ask. It's Uh, a good
1: question. It's a good question because there is no easy answer, right? And so, you know, it requires me to think. And the best answer that I have for you is varied. There are some cultures in there which are very uh, private and therefore access to information is difficult, which creates a culture in and of itself, that kind of mentality, right? Um, and so if you start looking at industries like finance and um, even to a degree some government agencies and, you know, um, I think finance is a pretty good one because it's highly, like the incentives for the actual industries to make money, right? It's very, very simple, whereas in academia it is to produce research or deliver education. So I think if you can look at a number of things um, to work out what the kind of culture would be like, you're looking at broad-based things, you know, what kind of industry is it and what sort of structure does it have, where is management heavy? Is it is it top heavy or is it middle management heavy? That gives you a really good idea. Um, and and of course, look at the front-facing you know uh, dynamics of the culture. You know what does it prescribe? What does it say on its website about culture? You know you can get a really good read just from basic research skills, right, on a culture. But there is no, I can't say there's a generic. Mm. you know, statement to say that we are like this. I think it varies, you know, and that's probably an answer a critical lithographer would give you because there is no standard.
0: No, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, question. Sorry. In the uh,
0: context of finance would be incredibly uh, different for lots of different reasons. Some of it is because it's private in nature, other is because, it is a topic that is a bit taboo. you know, but the conversation around finances and and those sorts of things mm-hmm. tends to be complicated for how we all individually hold it. Like all, most of us tend to pull our hair out when we hear that, you know the 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 you know uh, profit and loss of Commonwealth Bank is five billion dollars yes. for the first half of the year or something. For a lot of us, that in and of itself, is quite challenging. Yes. Others, they're like, well, yeah, what would you expect? That's what shareholders do and et cetera. So it's quite interesting that there's certain topics that already elicit quite quite a lot of tension in that front stage, backstage power dynamic versus maybe other cultures that might find it a little bit easier where it's already in line with... Probably those people who are working in those environments. Um, You know, academia.
1: Let me give you an example. I work for obviously UNSW at the moment. And I believe, having researched a few organizations now, I believe it is a very transparent kind of organization. And I think that breeds a healthy culture. I think the more layers of uh, privacy, that an organization has to I said I guess withstand for various reasons obviously some are legislative for example um I think that can actually constrain a culture uh but I, I do think an open transparent culture where people are more freely to express themselves and aren't necessarily you know um you know, there's no backlash to come towards them, at least initially, um, I think that's a good thing. You know, backlash does come eventually if you keep talking negatively about any institution, right, particularly if one that you, one that you work with. But if you come with an open mind and you say, right, we've got these problems in our organisation, I care enough about the organisation to raise them, um, I care deeply about them and I want to implement X, Y and Z solutions or at least, you know, garner some support or, or feedback, around what we can do to change some of these things. I think that goes a, a really long way to transforming culture and making it more cooperative and enjoyable to to work at as well, We'll work within and function within. So there's lots where we can actually do ourselves, I suppose, um, to transform culture. It's not necessarily something that we just leave with management because often they don't know how to actually successfully develop and build a culture, let alone transform it. Um, often it's the interactions that we have daily with our peers and staff that actually can change the dynamics of culture, at least for us in our internal little environments that we work in every day. So, yeah, that's. In, I think that's an important point as well.
0: And is, is a lot of what the culture conversation talks about in some sense uh, Connected to you know power and control. I mean, yes. the, I know that the other side, obviously, I think it's almost saying the same thing. But being open and being vulnerable is a different, different side of power and control. It seems like it's still on the same uh, on the same measurement scale. Uh, it's about how an organization and, and all and all the people who who live within that or work within that organization, how they feel. With regards to, you know, what is the mission? How are we supported? You know, where's the power? Are we going in line with our values that are stated both, you know, externally and internally? How open is this? You know, mm-hmm. can we go out and, and and question um these these, I suppose, discrepancies when they come about? What happens when the when yeah, we question it? Are we are we ostracized or uh, are we supported and, and, and understood even if a change can't happen? Uh, you know, the, the, absolutely. Is, is that basically, uh, not basically, is that a lot of where that sort of culture is, is understood that the uh, ethnographic sort of approach, a critical approach, tries to understand in terms of what all those relationships are? Yes,
1: absolutely. And I think one dimension of power and control that, one must grapple with particularly at senior levels of the uh, organizational uh, hierarchy is what do you do with power and control once you have it because by the nature of the role that you're in you'll have it but then what do you do with it and how do you use it to either build people up or bring them down and I think that's really really important for leaders to understand they have such power to elevate humanity just by the way that they actually use their power and control within an organisation. And this is where really good leadership comes into place. Um, Often people are struggling to get into these leadership positions. They've stayed in organisations for a really long time. They're finally there and then they don't actually know what to do to actually build their people up. Um, And this is really important. What do you do with power and control once you have it? What do you do with it? Mm. And, you know, I think this is where... A lot of reflection and insight needs to be developed, um, introspectively obviously, for leaders who are either emerging or who are there currently because there is always more that you can do to lift people up and to build Mm. them up. Um, The one particular area that I focused on was normative control. So there is this thing called culture control. And that's when you're actually, you know, prescribing the culture in a way that you want your employees to present themselves by way of language and behaviour, right? You have your codes of conduct, you have all the prescribed documents to ensure that people um, adhere to these uh, guidelines for behaviour and language, right? But then normative control is a different type of control. It's, it's It's kind of elusive in a way because what happens is Employees start behaving in a way that is uh unconscious to them because of their environment, right? So they may have read all the documents, they may have, you know, on paper and even you know cognitively said to themselves, right, I'm going to adhere to the way that the organization wants me to behave. But then what are all the other incentives in the organization that are that are driving an implicit dimension of control, which is this normative control that I'm talking about. So, Because employees need incentives often to behave in a certain way. It's not good enough just to say, right, you have to stick to this of conduct. This is, you know, what we're telling you to do. They want other measures of um, or rather other incentives. And so when employees start behaving in a way that is unconscious to them, Because the incentives are in place, that's what we call normative control. And that's something that's really, really interesting because it takes a lot of unpacking. Um, And you can see some of the strains that people actually endure just to get ahead in organisations, what they do, what they say, under the influences of normative control. Um, And it's really quite fascinating because you do see different perspectives of people when they're on a mission, ready to deliver for the organization they've bought into whatever it is the kool-aid as they say um and they're prepared to to fight to the end to get what they want in terms of reward and recognition whether that be promotions whether that be share incentives whether that be um Mm. you know more responsibility etc so it's these unconscious dynamics that are going on for people that are that's driving their behavior that's what's really interesting for me i think and particularly from a critical ethnographic perspective
0: it's really interesting because I, I I had a colleague that uh, uh was working at a um uh, a consulting organization similar to you know your kpmgs and and, and the like um I think it was Mackenzie's um yeah. and the culture there at least what they described was you know it's uh, and they had a term for it you know upwards uh, or out yes um,
1: that sounds so quite
0: it was it was it was uh, very fine. well known, and that was uh, openly discussed. That you're either taking on the next job that you're being asked to do and you're excelling at it, uh, or you're no longer part of the firm. Um, and obviously, they were all very well paid. You know, the, the, my colleague was was um, a very impressive and continues to be a very impressive person. But there was that understanding that. You say yes to everything, um, in terms of outcomes at least, you know, and 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 you know, we've got to achieve these milestones and the like. Uh but that can only in 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 essence kind of work with a a very high a very specific type of cohort, right? Like they hire for that and and obviously fire for that as as well, because you're either in, you know, upward or you're out. So there's an understanding that that. You know, you're know, you either able to uh, you 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 cut from that same cloth or mm-hmm. um you're not part of that 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 group so interesting as, as you said that might be a bit of a normative absolutely control. absolutely uh you know some of that is obviously from an economic thing but others is status I'm assuming yes, yes. to maintain your status you have to continue to 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 um you to know to, uh, behave in in, in that prescribed way, I suppose, I'm oh, not prescribed, sorry, in the, in the way that's understood to be right.
1: Yes. Well, these are the norms and the values of the organisation. However, you know, one must then challenge that and say, right, we have these clear boundaries of what's, you know, necessary and what's not, right, what we want and what we don't want, but what are the practical consequences of that? What are the practical, because there's action-reaction react- You know, if you create these strong norms in an organization, there is going to be a reaction by staff members. I I suspect, I suspect because it is so clear cut and black and white, that particular culture um, or that, you know, ideological perspective that's driving that culture, I suspect that they would have huge employee issues because there is no gray area to discuss. What is actually progress, you know? A lot of the time people make progress when they're doing nothing because they're actually, you know, they've got a chance to deliberate and think and reflect about things. So, you know, there's so many things to unpack with that ideological perspective in and of itself, which I I don't, you know, I would never subscribe to such a culture. I don't believe in that that kind of model. I understand why they do it. You know, it's very lucrative, um, particularly if you get the right people on board. But, you know, how long do they stay? And we know that in, in particularly in areas of academia and 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 other areas where you need to build up a lot of expertise to be actually knowledgeable in a particular area, you want tenure. You want people who have been around for a long time, so they've built up the knowledge, for a you know over a period of time that can actually add value to particular situations and emerging issues that come up in whatever capacity that they're working in. So, you know, I I, I understand it. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of it.
0: It's so fascinating to think about all these things because once you go and start looking at what are the forcing functions of how organizations make decisions, whether it's you know a consulting firm where, you know, maybe the the dollar holds a whole lot more than in another organization, it depends where their funding's coming from. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we we see in medicine, maybe we see it potentially in in certain areas of of, of even academia. Uh, sometimes we tolerate bad behaviour because someone's really good at what they do or they can attract lots of grants. Or, you know, once power comes in, as you say, the question is what do you do with that power? And sometimes organisations feel uh, sort of hamstrung on on particular people who yes. uh, they are, in, in essence, become almost dependent on, you know, there, there's so much um value that one person brings, but at the same time they can force a force the cultural function in any direction. And it's kind of uh it's fascinating to watch anyway. And I suppose that's why large organizations, share prices go up and down with mm. the change of a CEO just like that. Or so, or even with the hint of a CEO change or or management change or whatever it might be. Um we okay. know that that huge changes can occur both positive and, and 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 negative depending on I suppose what the what the goal is uh, uh to to um yeah how the operation runs
1: well this is where I guess this is probably more you know your domain um psychopathology comes into it right particular personality types yes. particular personality disorders often we have um you know narcissistic personality sort of very uh you know prevalent in areas of particular areas of work you know surgeons academics you can see that there's a degree of um uh, a lack of empathy potentially sometimes in in people who hold positions of power and you know that's when we have to be really careful as people who elect leaders um who are we actually putting in do we know them well enough what are they going to do with their power once they've got it And uh, what are the unintended consequences of of potentially putting these people into positions of power? So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there just from a psychopathological perspective, I think,
0: Um,
1: and being really careful, being really careful that we're putting the right people in positions of influence and leadership.
0: I read Elon Musk's uh, recent um, biography uh, which yes. is so fascinating because at least the way I read it, so this wouldn't be everyone else's interpretation, but just solely speaking for myself, it seemed like, and I have to put my hand up and say I'm a big fan um, yep. uh, because that's my bias. So I'm looking at it through that lens. Um, it seems like he has a, a, a great uh, love and compassion of humanity in that um. he's trying to make the world better. Uh but he holds little to no compassion or care for any individual. Uh So he is willing to absolutely destroy or tread on any individual for a bigger picture, and that is such, I suppose, a different um, trait that most people do not have, uh, where repeatedly, you know, reading in his book, he was so happy to... Uh, maybe not happy is the wrong word, but he has a mechanism to just say, I don't need you in the organization anymore because you you no longer serve the function. Mm. Um, and the function is to achieve X, getting to Mars or whatever um, madness he has at the time. Uh, even though it appears on the surface that we are absolutely wonderful, great friends and 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 have, you know, and have, 15 years together it's like gone why are you even here um which is just from a psychological point of view mind-blowing that 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 capacity and obviously that probably comes to probably says something a little bit about maybe what he has achieved um at the same time i imagine it therefore means that very specific people are attracted to working in his organization or organizations but uh it's fascinating to, to kind of look at different leadership and styles and what's the aim you know uh and you know psych i, I think mental health gets affected so immediate and instantly in in all of these you know uh, that uh uh is, is is sometimes not really understood very well or not considered um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as to how change affects people so rapidly. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. I think in the case of Elon Musk, you know, he's a very unique thinker, right, and he has a vision of what you said, you know, a vision of what his legacy will be essentially, and uh, if you're not fitting within his picture of the end solution or how to get to that solution, you're out of the picture. And um, I think to a degree people like Elon achieve greatness, right, and he has achieved greatness because he's been like that. Um, But then there are a whole heap of people that are burnt from the process of going through that, and their recovery is obviously really important as well. you know, there's probably a degree of people where he thought, you know what, I have to let them go because they're really, you know, not performing. And there's probably other ones that were really trying their guts out and they still didn't reach ex- expectations, yeah. you know. So, you know, what, how did those people actually handle recovery? That, that's another completely different issue altogether. And and maybe there's no mechanism other than finding a personal therapist and working through that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a challenging one. I think you're quite right. It's it's a challenging one for people to sort of get their head around, and because you don't want to stop the visionary, but you also you need to stop the kind of, you know, the aftermath of what comes out the other
0: end. Well, com- it, complete destruction. It is complete. Like the human toll, at least for those around him, and you know, I imagine in his mind, it's like, you know, to save a million people, to kill two thousand, mm. yeah, just do it. Yeah. yeah. Why are we even debating this? You know, another person would feel something about it. Here We just say, that's mathematically correct. Go ahead and do it. What's next? <laughs> now,
1: what do we do though? What do we do? Is with- wacko.
0: It's, it, it's it's so crazy, it's 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 not wacko, but it's fascinating.
1: But let's let's challenge that for a sec, right? And let's say, okay, right now we believe his intentions are good, right? His intentions are to progress humanity in various ways and forms. What happens if his intentions change? Yeah. With that much power and control and the intentions going in a different direction, being on the wrong side of history, what happens then? You know, these are really important questions for us to think about what uh, protection mechanisms do we have in place to control such an event, should it happen, or control such a phenomena, should it happen? I mean, we have an interesting situation with Russia and Putin, right? And, you know, we need to ask ourselves that question, should Ukraine be taken over by Russia? What are the consequences then? You know, the, is this in, you know, is the intention of this person on the right or wrong side of history? I think we know the answer, right? And so we have to kind of think about that and what the implications are for everybody. So yeah, it's right to say, yes, Elon Musk is fabulous. His intentions are great. What happens tomorrow if his intentions change?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So yeah. So it's comp- very, that.
0: very complicated and 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 uh uh, it's 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 lovely to uh, have a small glimpse of of what I think this approach in in terms of how to view, understand, observe, research, measure, consider, and entertain you know all of these different factors um, how valuable that is. Moving away from just the quantitative um, side, uh, because in many ways, I suppose the qualitative is what we do in therapy. We take things on in face value. We but, do. But we but talk. At some stage, we we also want a quantitative side of 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 you know what has changed. Yes, and and those two are in a marriage. They they must complement each other rather than oppose Sorry. each other. And I know that. For such a long period of time, certainly in you know, my experience, that the qualitative has been shunned. You know, as though there's something wrong with that, and, and maybe I put my hand up as well, and potentially say there's been times I've I've, I've maybe done that as well. Similarly, I think that the quantitative uh, uh, needs to be questioned as well, because you know we know that we've got a re- replication crisis uh-huh. on our hands um so it kind of shows we can rig the game uh, when when we need to which probably says a lot more about power and and, and control uh and how systems are set up to, to and and then obviously a normative control arises from, from yeah, that what are my, questions, what are my academic questions going to be
1: absolutely um, absolutely if you look at um the incentives in academia it's very much a quantitative pathway for a lot of researchers you know so um and and i think there's a lot of normative control going on to be honest around that um i i think you're right though it's they need to be complementary they need to work together to produce really good outcomes and if i had to give any advice to any you know students embarking upon research i would say dabble in as many research methodologies as you can get yourself familiar with them and then focus in on one that you really, really, really love and are good at and are passionate about because you will do the best research with that. For me, just so happened that I enjoy and I really, really am passionate about talking to people and understanding their subjective viewpoints and getting to the crux of what's going on in their lives, right? I love that about qualitative research. I love that about ethnography because I'm also complementing what they're telling me in a research capacity from a qualitative perspective, with what I'm observing as well from a, a language and behavior perspective. So I can marry the two of those things up, and that really gives me a nice, complete picture of, or or a better picture than I, what I would have achieved as if if I went down a quantitative pathway where I didn't even actually have much of a an interaction with them. So. Focus, that's my advice I suppose for anyone embarking upon a research method just learn about all of them and um, immerse yourself in a few that you think are interesting and follow your curiosity and stick with what you love um that's the best advice that I can give
0: and beautiful advice and I think fitting because it it, it your your passion oozes out of you. Ah. I think. You're talking uh, about you. about this. It it comes out in 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 you know your expression, your language, and the pace that you you speak. And I think it's beautiful to see uh, that that passion. And I think it's placed very well because it comes from that very curious place. Uh, before we finish up, can I just ask you for those listening, where can they find out more about uh, your work? Any research? How can they get into into the? Uh, I suppose. You know, field. Um, yes. Uh, uh, because I think uh, it, it's important that we um, continue that conversation for for others, uh, because you know this isn't a topic that I think is often discussed too much.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, I obviously work for the University of New South Wales. I'm the discipline manager for psychiatry and mental health in the School of Clinical Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. So if anyone wants to find me, all they have to do is Google my name. Um, I also have a consulting business called Mind Culture Life and I offer consulting solutions around organisational culture analysis and also, um, uh, you know, one-on-one consultations as well for, for psychotherapy. So if if anyone's in need of any interesting um, perspectives on culture or research in relation to culture or critical ethnography, um, yeah, more than happy to to receive an email or phone call or any sort of correspondence.
0: Fantastic. And a big, big thank you for coming on today. I know we could have spoken for much, much longer, and and uh, I thank you for for your time and the passion that you bring. And you know, it's exciting to have people like yourself not only doing the work that you do but also uh shaping you know our our students uh, as well who hopefully will be as equally passionate and, and and bring about these questions in organizations and just how they do life as, as well so oh, my you know, I appreciate pleasure. you and uh thank you for coming on.
1: my pleasure thank you so much
0: if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media. And tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.